Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. In this series, we're bringing together leading thinkers to ask one of life's most important, substantial questions. What does it mean to live wisely and well? We'll get expert insight on neurobiology, mortality, loneliness, the meaning of an intellectual life, and more. In this first episode, Kurt Thompson discusses insights from his book, The Soul of Desire, discovering the neuroscience of longing, beauty, and community. He weaves together neurobiological insight and spiritual formation to open up new ways of understanding our longing for connection with God and each other. The reason that this is important is because our trauma and our shame, all that stuff, if I don't take care of that, I'm necessarily literally going to have to be burning neurobiological energy to contain it. And that is energy that I then will not have available to create those artifacts of beauty and goodness in the world that God has prepared for me and you together, along with the presence of the Holy Spirit from before the foundation of the world to create. This episode is an edited version of our online conversation from October of 2021. You can find the full video of that conversation on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. The big questions of the humanities almost all relate to the purpose and the content of the good life, what it is and how it's realized. But for all of us, there is an inevitable and perhaps very great distance, even disconnect between what we hope our lives will be and what they actually are all of which lead us to profound and very personal as well as practical questions around personal transformation. We'll dive into some of those questions with a guest who has spent his vocation seeking to help others yearning for transformation. He's argued that at our core, we are created beings longing to be deeply known, a desire that can propel great works of creativity and deep connection, but is often distorted by trauma, sin, and shame. And he illuminates the ways in which a confessional community can reshape our imaginations and reveal new possibilities for better knowing and loving God, ourselves, and others. It's a redemptive, hopeful, even beautiful vision. And there are few that can present it and wrestle with it with the expertise, empathy, wisdom, or wry humor as our guest today, Kurt Thompson. Kurt is a practicing psychiatrist and neuroscientist, as well as the founder of Being Known LLC, which helps people explore the connection between interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spirituality. He is, I am quite proud to say, a senior fellow of the Trinity Forum, as well as a sought-after speaker and consultant, the creator of the Being Known podcast, and the author of the excellent books, Anatomy of the Soul, The Soul of Shame, and of course, his most recent just published work, The Soul of Desire, Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community, which we've invited him here today to discuss. Kurt, welcome. Three, always a pleasure. Well, absolutely. So I have to ask, this is a rather unusual approach. At the beginning of your book, you tell the story of seeing a patient who came to you for anxiety and depression. And after listening to him, you offered him a fairly surprising prescription. Instead of handing out Xanax, Zoloft, whatever, you told him to go look at Rembrandt's The Prodigal Son. I'd like to ask you why. What 
can beauty or art do that Prozac can't? Well, I mean, first of all, he wasn't doing anything else I was asking him to do. So, I mean, in many respects, like when all else, yeah, when all else fails, I, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we do is we as, we, as we will talk about, that we are quick to, whenever we run into distress, we are quick, not so much to imagine uh, or be curious about this with a posture of curiosity and observation, but we're really much more interested in ass assessing whatever's happening as a problem that we need to solve and to solve it as quickly as possible. And this was his experience. He had this set of symptoms that were, of course, for him, they just thought, he thought that the, that the problem had to do with the symptoms that he was bearing at the time. But the problem is my depression and my anxiety, as opposed to what's underneath that. One of the first things I tell patients is that under most circumstances, when they're in my office, no matter what their symptoms are, and with them not thinking that their brain is working at all, I say, no, actually your brain is a very trustworthy organ and it's telling you exactly what you need to hear, albeit not in a way that you're finding to be palatable at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so when some of the more straightforward offerings that I invited him to consider from a psychotherapy standpoint and even from a pharmacology standpoint were not something that he was comfortable with doing, it was too distressing for him to enter into some of those ways of, you know, encountering the healing process. We started, I, I invited him to consider like, you know, being with this painting, a Rembrandt's painting. And of course, this uh, of course felt very confusing to him that, you know, why, why am I paying you to tell me to go look at a piece of art? What on earth could, how could this be helpful? What was so interesting is that one of the things that we know and that I talk about in the book is that this notion of how being present with beauty, first of all, it slows us down long enough, right? I don't mean just like look at it on, you know, on the internet for five minutes. I mean, I want you to be present with this and I want you to be curious about this and the whole notion of slowing oneself down and then being open to seeing things, being curious about things that you heretofore haven't been because I've been too busy trying to cope with my anxiety in the ways that I've unsuccessfully been trying to cope. And as we all know, when we don't do things well to solve our problems, our next gear that we try to find is just to double down on the way that we're doing them that has been so ineffective. And so I think it, for this patient, it began, of course, it felt confusing, odd. This, it, it didn't, there was, there was no framework within which to put this. How would I, I end up going to see a psychiatrist? How do I end up going to invite it to go see a piece of artwork? This notion almost reminds me of the prophet Elisha and Naaman, the general from the Assyrian army that comes with his leprosy. And the prophet says, go wash in the Jordan. There's this sense of go and have an experience with something that you're going to have an encounter with something that is not a quick, easily straightforward, linear solution to your problem. And this patient's encounter with beauty began to open him to things that otherwise his logical linear tracking brain would have been working overtime to try to divert him from. And so in many respects, the painting and his encounter with it kind of circumvented the defenses that his left brain was putting out and that was actually a source of his depression and anxiety and opened him to being aware of other things that he was feeling, other things that he was longing for. And this is one of the primary things that we're saying that beauty really does lead to healing. We do believe that beauty can save the world, will save the world. 
because it is coming to us and inviting us to encounter ourselves, each other, and the world in the order in which the brain was actually intended to, to operate. And that experience for him became transformational, primarily because it surprised him how it was that as he began to do this, despite his initial unwillingness, it began to evoke within him an awareness of things that he felt, parts of his own story, as he started to view this painting of a father who's holding and welcoming his heretofore errant son. What is that? All those kinds of things about his own story began to be evoked in ways that just a cognitive behavioral therapeutic intervention was not getting to. And that's a bit of a long-winded answer to the question, but it's a way that beauty really kind of encounters us in ways that we otherwise would be surprised that it could and to bring healing and, you know, recommissioning of our stories. Yeah, that's fascinating. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is in addition to just the, the power of beauty, one of the things that you mentioned really right at the outset of your book is that your assertion that we are at essence people of desire. Mm -hmm. You know, that essentially it's our, our longings and our loves that mm -hmm. reflect more deeply who we are than even, you know, what we think or what we, we say that we believe mm -hmm. and the like. Mm -hmm. uh, but I wanted to ask how, and you sort of touch on this, how we know what we most long for or want mm -hmm. in that, mm -hmm. you know, almost every human heart has some kind of internal conflict. And so, I mean, does it, does it take art or what is it that helps us know what we most love when we're pulled in so many different directions? Right. I, I think, you know, this is where I, I've said to folks in the last six months, I have become, in, a, a week does not go by in which I don't feel like I'm discovering yet one more way that Jesus' words offer application, his words in which he said, unless you change and become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's not saying, I won't let you into the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, no, this is the way the kingdom of heaven actually operates. And if you're not going to pay attention to the way that children actually operate in the world and live in that way, it will be like, you're, you're not going to like heaven. It's going to be unpleasant for you. Much like, you know, in the great divorce, Lewis's characters, we're finding some of his characters, we're finding the presence of heaven to be too much, too uncomfortable. And when we look at children, one of the first things that we see, they are, they come into the world, these little living, breathing, you know, nuclear energy plants of desire, right? They, they have these appetites. They long, they want stuff. We are a wanting people. And it first starts with these physical appetites, this sense of needing to be like nurtured and fed and so forth and so on. And then they discover objects, right? That's it's the rattle in my crib. It's this over there. It's this over there. And but as their brain develops, as our brains develop, we discover that relationally, what I'm mostly longing for, as it turns out, we go into more detail in the book in this, is that ultimately, we are really longing for these four things that are represented by these four words that each begin with the letter S. We want to be seen. We want to be soothed. We want to be safe. And we want to be secure. We notice this from attachment research. And these four words were coined by my friend, Dan Siegel, and his colleague, Tina Payne Bryson, in one of their works. Dan and I talk about the last word, secure, differently, but the first three are the same, this sense that we come into the world like we walk into the room. We have a chat room here, right? We have a chat room, even on a Zoom call. We're chatting because we want somebody to see us. Mm -hmm. I want to be seen 
But the next thing I know, a newborn comes into the world, like she needs to be taken care of. He needs to be like clothed, fed, warmed, all those things. I, I need to be soothed. And the next thing you know, I don't just need to be soothed in terms of my appetites or my coldness or my hunger. I need to be soothed in the boardroom. I need to be soothed in my marriage. I need to be soothed when I'm in school. There, there's no place in which at some point we're not going to run into some kind of painful experience with which the response I really need is to be soothed. But first that I need to be seen in order to be soothed. And if I'm in any system, whether it's the family or the business or the school or the church, whatever, or the academy, whatever it happens to be, that system, once I am soothed and seen, I become, I, I develop the sense of safety. Now, that's a word that we could talk many, many hours about in the way it's used and or maybe not used well enough or used inappropriately even in our Western culture. But there are two words that I use to describe. When we have the sense of safety, it means my, my sense that I, am com I have comfort and confidence in this space. That's important to know. That comfort and confidence does not mean that there are no nicks and bruises. I can be completely comfortable in my house and get my finger pinched in a door. I'm three years old, running around the kitchen, slip, fall, cut my eye. It doesn't mean that I'm not safe, but it does mean that I will still end up being comfortable and confident in that space. But my safety, it's important to know that I'm growing up in a system in which my safety is not just me being protected from things on the outside of me that might hurt. Safety also means that parents engender in children and we as leaders engender in the people that we are leading a sense of safety and protection from things within myself. I'm the two-year-old. If you just let me have whatever it is that I want, I have all these appetites. Unless at some point you say no to me, my own internal appetites will begin to devour me. And so I also have to create safety from my own impulses to do things that in the long run will hurt me. So I'm not just being protected from things outside my skin. I have to be protected from me. And I have to learn what those things are. But once we have those three things to be seen, soothed, and safe, we see this with children and that grow up then into all the things that we do, we then develop a sense of being secure. And by secure, what I mean by the word secure is this, we are in a system in which we are seen, soothed, and safe. Whether that's my home, my neighborhood, my school, my political system, this is what we long for. We then long to move out from that space and begin to make new things. Because as we see this whole notion of what it means for us to be human is not just for me to be loved, for me to be known. I long to be known. And then in that space, I wanna make stuff. This is what our three-year-olds do. They run into the kitchen, they hold up your, your piece of paper, they put it, on, we want, put it on the refrigerator and charge money to your neighbors to come in and see it. That's what they want. Because they really do believe it's Van Gogh. And it actually looks a little like it for all we know, right? And so this is what they're gonna make things but when we make things, the very act of creativity is an act of vulnerability. Somebody might not like what I have to offer. I might make mistakes with what I offer. I'm going to go out and venture and take risks, create new businesses. I'm going to create new offerings of all kinds of things. I might get my nose bloodied or my knees skinned. And when that happens, there, there will be ruptures in the notion of launching into a place of security I'm secure from, these, from this space of being seen, soothed, and safe in order to take the risks of what's the next act of creativity that I'm being called to create. 
But when that happens that I do get my nose bloodied, when the ruptures do come, I need to know that there is always a place to which I can return, which I can be seen, soothed, and safe. To do the work of repairing in order to return to the secure space of taking the risks again. This is the natural flow of secure attachment. And this is what all children, and as it turns out, it never stops what we all long to be doing. These four things, it never stops. It doesn't stop until we're dead. And of course, evil knows this. And it will want to take advantage of our desire. We'd like to say, right, evil doesn't exist really kind of on its own. It has to, it parasitically latches on to that which is beautiful and good in the world with his intention to ruin and devour it. But if we are aware of what our longings are really first about, that gives us an inside track onto what does it then mean for us to be agents of healing and hope and new creation, new generation, the creation of beauty and goodness in the world. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, you were talking a bit about how being known is sort of the precursor to being conduits to creativity, uh, but you've also said that it's only when we're known that we're positioned to become conduits of love. Hmm. And you know, ultimately, of course, it's love that, that transforms. And so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about how being known enables us to be conduits of love. Well, I think the first thing that would be, I mean, for me, I mean, I, I know that there are, you know, words are important. They're not everything, but they're important. And so even when we talk about a thing like love, mm -hmm. not to, you know, I'll, I'll leave that to Jamie Smith to talk about this, right? But I'm not, I'm not a philosopher here, but this notion that we can talk about love, but in some respect, and we need to be able to talk about it as an abstraction, right? Like this idea of love. But in many respects, as far as our brain is concerned, my brain doesn't really engage with this abstract thing called love. My brain engages with loving acts, loving behavior. And so love is for me to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure, that I feel it literally in my chest, in my face, and I am turned loose then to create material things, whether it's the next new Yeti mug or it's the next new algorithm of math that is so elegant that I can't even come up with it, right? All these things of beauty, but this notion that to be loved gets me, you know, for me, it comes back to this, these verses in 1 Corinthians 8, where we read that there are those who think they know who do not know as they ought, but the person who loves God is known by God. This notion that I know love, I know when I feel it in my chest, mm -hmm. not just because someone with their sight line and their tone of voice and their body language make me feel good about myself, but I also know it when there is a part of me that is on display that I'm not very proud of and you stay in the room. When you're mad at me and you say that you're mad at me, but you do so in a way that doesn't shame me or show contempt for me. When you are honest with me about your disappointment or your sadness with me, but do so in a way that the very act of putting something on the table that is unpleasant or painful, the very act and the way that you do it is your attempt to even move closer to me, even as we talk about hard things. That is a viscerally felt bottom to top, right to left brain activity in which we are wired to know that that's what it means to be loved. For me to love God is for me to respond to a God by whom I've had that felt sense of being seen. 
not just with his compassion, but with his compassion in the face of the parts of me that I don't want him to see. And the thing, the reason, reason that this is important is because our trauma and our shame, all that stuff, if I don't take care of that, I'm necessarily literally going to have to be burning neurobiological energy to contain it. And that is energy that I then will not have available to create those artifacts of beauty and goodness in the world that God has prepared for me and you together, along with the presence of the Holy Spirit from before the foundation of the world to create. But I can't do that if the energy is not available because I'm burning it, trying to contain all the parts of me that I don't want you to see. As we talk about confessional communities, we talk, this becomes the space in which I am loved. And as I am unloved, and as, as I am loved in this way, because I'm known deeply, I'm seen, sued, safe, secure. And that includes the moments when you and I are going to fight. You and I are going to have our own ruptures and we're going to repair those where in which our relationship becomes even more resiliently and deeply connected, comfortable and confident with each other, even in the face of hard moments. I am that much more emboldened to take the next risk of doing the next hard thing in our current political climate, in our current climate climate in our current pandemic climate, in our current isolation climate, in all the places where the world feels like it's tottering most on its edge, those become the places that feel the most frightening, the most painful, the most shame and trauma ridden. It is in those places where we are saying, that's where God is looking for beauty to emerge in the very places that we would least expect it. I want to get to confessional communities in a moment, but you mentioned the pandemic climate, and you've also mm. talked about shame as being viral in nature, which seems mm. both apt and a, a bit of a double meaning there, and that it's it spreads quickly. It's all it seems to be our cultural go-to weapon. Mm. And we have cancel mm. culture, call-out culture, Twitter mobs, and the like. Mm. Uh, right now, we're dealing with our current pandemic with a vaccine and masks. Hmm. Given how quickly shame seems to spread, hmm. you know, it is both potent and contagious and wildly transmissible. Mm -hmm. Is there something that can be done to whether it's increase our protection or build our antibodies or our immunity against this mm -hmm. on a societal level, or does this necessarily have to be individually accretive, just one person by one person? Well, I don't know that it's an either or. I don't know that it's uh, we're going to do this from a top down uh, perspective or from a bottom up perspective. I don't know that it's an either or phenomenon. I think, you know, quantum mechanics would tell us that like it's not that we don't live in a binary world. We live in a world in which lots of things are happening at one time. I would say this. I, I would say that much like gravity. There's me and another person, myself who wears the mask and the other who doesn't or vice versa. We're different. We're in different places. The next step is they were naked. I'm going to have to be willing to be vulnerable. And to be vulnerable isn't just to say, to be, for example, not to be just like, I think you're wrong for wearing the mask or not wearing the mask. To be vulnerable would be to say, 
I really want to be more connected to you. And I'm afraid that our difference is going to make it such that we won't be. And that really breaks my heart because I really long to be connected to you. That's a very different thing than me leading with, what's wrong with you What that you're wearing a mask? I think that you're wrong for not wearing a mask. Whatever we lead with, you're the problem that I need to solve. As opposed to leading with naming what it is that I want. And by this, I don't mean I want you to not wear the mask like I don't or wear the mask like I do. That's not my deepest longing. My deepest longing is about being seen, soothed, safe, and secure. My deepest longing is to be connected to you. We don't have a lot of practice naming what we want. We have very little practice naming this because we, not just as individuals, but as culture, again, that whole notion that shame becomes viral, right? It's a geometric rise in it. It's not just a linear rise in it. The whole becomes much larger than the sum of its parts. And so my trauma, I'm going to visit upon you, which then we can visit upon four others and then eight others and then 16 others and so forth and so on. And so we do have to take seriously what is, you know, when Paul writes in Romans 12 and 13 and 14, this notion about like, let love be the thing you're going to be about. And what does that mean? I'm going to pursue people. I want to let them know that I want to be connected to them. I want to let them know that like, I, I want to hear more about, tell me more about your story such that wearing the mask or not wearing the mask is where you are. I want to hear more about this because I want to know your story in order to better comprehend and be emotionally connected to what is it about wearing the mask or not wearing the mask that evokes vulnerability for you, that evokes your fear and your longing. That is a way in which I'm going to be connected in which even if we get to the end of our conversation and we still are in places of difference, the fact that we will have had this conversation will connect us in ways that 30 minutes ago we weren't connected. That's just one example of small ways in which we do have to be committed to recognizing that if it is true that God's mission in the world of new creation is to, with every new day, with all the new mercies that are available, he longs for us to create beauty with every step of the way that we're taking this day. And so when we come across someone who we perceive to be in a different place, it's very easy for my brain to immediately go into defense mode. It takes work, intentional work for me to practice being curious about how can I create beauty with this person with whom I perceive there to be great difference? How can I do this? I mean, this is what God does with us, right? He's creating beauty with us with whom he has great difference. And this is what we are being called to do. But as we like to say in our business, like I cannot live into a world that I have not yet first imagined. I must first imagine, even if that imagination is only one step ahead of me, I cannot live into something new that I have not yet imagined. And the other thing is that I can't give anybody something that I don't have. And if I want new creation to be something that takes place between me and someone else, especially someone else with whom I might have difference, I can't do that with them for them if I am also not having someone else pour into me the opportunity for me to be seen, soothed, safe, secure, even with somebody else who might themselves know that we have great difference. And again, where these confessional communities begin to take 
shape and, and become helpful with this is this notion that if I'm in a, if I'm in a community with people who are committed to that kind of work, it really enables me to recognize that my mission isn't just about, you know, figuring out, well, what should we do? Is it mass on or mass off? Now, this doesn't mean at some point that we won't all make some decisions and some people will be so unable to be present with us that there will be some kind of permanent separation. That sometimes happens. This happened with Jesus and the rich young ruler. Jesus said, there's only one thing that you lack. Here's some things for you to do. He couldn't pull that off. But even in that space, when the disciples came back to Jesus later and said, gosh, like if this dude can't get in, like, like we're all screwed. Like, how are we going to do this? Jesus does not say to them, you're right. Like that guy's such an idiot. He doesn't categorize him as the enemy. He reminds them that this whole notion of working hard to earn God's delight, making sure that I'm being perfect in order for you to love me, that's not the law of gravity in God's economy. And so this practice of our being willing to look for opportunities to make connection, not to identify these experiences first as a source of disconnection mm -hmm. requires practiced imaginative expansion that we're only going to get if we have other people in our lives who are also seeing parts of us that would be easy for me to like imagine like are you really going to want to be in the room with me if you know this part about my life but when they do and we live into that we can then begin to practice living into this with other people with whom we also find great difference mm -hmm you've talked, I think probably a lot of people are seeing the beauty of the kind of confessional community that you've described, but there's also, there's different tensions. I think all of us long to be in that kind of community. Uh, there's also a lot of people who have been hurt, traumatized, and not everyone is sort of, is safe necessarily to be in that kind of close relationship with. Right. So it is in your work of, you know, deliberately cultivating those kind of communities, what does the community look like? And what would you say to people who yearn for that kind of connection, but also feel the need to, as you have mentioned earlier, stay safe and secure and, mm -hmm. and boundaried? Right. So we're kind of asked, uh, how can we get to heaven as soon as we can? That's kind of like what, but really kind of what we're asking. If you know, because, I'd be most interested. Right, right. Well, if I knew, like, I'd be making a lot more money off of it than I'm getting, that I'm making right now. I mean, I can, I can tell you that. So I, I think we have a model of this. When we, when we read the gospels, you know, we see, first of all, that Jesus was unapologetic about the fact that the kingdom of heaven is not easy, right? He said the, garrow, the, the, narrow, the gate is narrow that we enter into. Like, this is hard work. He tells, he offers a parable to hundreds of people, but there's only a handful of people who were really, really serious enough to come after him to say, what does this really mean? I think one of the first things for us to recognize is that we live in a culture in which we long for these four S's. We long to be in a world of beauty and goodness, but I think we're really quite naive to the cost that is required for us to actually live in that world. It's also equally true that, again, like gravity, people have had lots of experiences with gravity in which they've gotten their knee skins 
and their nose is bloody, right? And then things have broken, things have fallen off their table and they've broken. And it's taken place in a context where people have said, no, 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 I'll take care of your very, very precious mug. And they don't, and it falls off the table and it breaks because gravity's in play. And the hard thing is, Sheree, is that we could decide, well, then I'm just not gonna like, like give anybody my mug anymore. You could do that. But it doesn't mean that the law of gravity doesn't apply still. If we want joy, if we want delight, if we want beauty and goodness, then also like in Lewis's work, The Silver Chair, when Jill Pohl wants to like have her thirst satiated, she's going to have to get past the lion. And she's like, well, I'm just going to go find another stream to do this. In. And he says, there is no other stream. There is no other way for us to do this, to which we would say, this is what Je Jesus comes. And in his crucifixion, God is saying to us, I get it. I get it. And I'm going to take responsibility for all that has happened. It's like, I get it. You can't do this. Like I'm going to take responsibility for what I created. And now I'm going to ask you to follow me into that. And so Jesus knows exactly what it's like to trust people who throw you under the bus. Jesus knows what it's like to like to be in your own family who believe that you've lost your mind. Jesus knows what it's like for you to offer words of beauty and goodness and to have people spit on you because of it. But he does not say, I think we're just going to do a different way. And so we would say to those who have been traumatized in the context of intimate relationships, we would say, we really get it. And that those intimate relationships, they're not just in marriage or sex or just in the family. They're in the church. They're in our political spectrum. They're in all kinds of places in which we thought we were entering into some vocational calling. We were going to be a teacher. We were going to be a lawyer. We were going to be an engineer. We were going to be all kinds of things. We were going to be a farmer. And the world has thrown me under the bus. I've offered you my precious mug and gravity has tilted and it's shattered. And like, I'm not giving anybody my cup anymore. And the hard part is gravity doesn't change. It still places the demand that if we are going to flourish in the world, those four S's must be satisfied. And so consequently, God being unapologetic for the way he's created the world gives us Jesus who lives with us in the world that we have to live in and says, okay, we're going to do it like this. And like this means that first of all, we acknowledge that these, that, that life is difficult. Confessional community is hard to do in this world. You will have tribulation. It is also something that we don't necessarily find people often ask where can i find one of these groups you can imagine jesus asking god the father so when i get there and i'm you know old enough to like do this where will i find the group that you've gotten ready for me and you see like the answer is like like dude you're gonna have to go make it you're gonna have to go find you're gonna have to like find the people and ask them to join you and that's a hard task we know that jesus asked lots of people who said no we know that perhaps God asked lots of people before he finally got Abraham to say yes. And who knows how long he was talking to Abraham before Abraham finally left, right? The land of the Chaldeans and came all the way to Canaan. Like he, like 
That's a slow moving train. And I can appreciate that because like I'm a slow moving train. And the reason I want to find the group is because I don't want to have to do the work of making the group of take. I want everybody to like, just welcome me in and like with all my stuff and like, there's not gonna be any work to do. And Jesus says, no, this is really hard. And those who are going to look for as, as, as we, as we read about also in the great divorce, at the end of the day, we all find what we're looking for. We find what we're really, really seeking. And if we're seeking this kind of life, this kind of flourishing, this way of living into new creation where our imaginations are expanded, even in the face of trauma, even in the, especially in the face of trauma and shame, then the recommend, you know, the suggestion that I'm giving to people now who don't have the opportunity, for instance, to be in a constructed community, community that we make in our practice, we would say like, look, I want you to find one or two people that you trust, one or two people. And, you know, we talk about a certain pattern and way of doing this in the last part of the book. I want you to find one or two people that you trust. And I want you to th- talk with them about telling them your story. You're going to do vice versa. And you're going to follow through th- with these recommendations. You're going to look at these questions that we're offering to you in, in the book or other places. And you need to know that this is going to take time because as we like to say, those things that are most beautiful and most durable in the world take a very, very long time to create. But I'm convinced that if we are willing to do this work, recognizing that the work is slow, but that it is faithful as is God, that beauty and goodness begin to emerge in the way that beauty emerges in a redwood forest. And that so much of the beauty that we're creating even now is not just going to be beauty for us. It's going to be beauty for the generation after us and the generation after that. That can't happen if we're not willing to do the hard work right here and now. But I want to say that at a time when our world feels so fractured that there is no better time, there is no greater opportunity for us to take the risk of imagining how confessional communities can create outposts of beauty and goodness in the world. Kurt, it's always a delight to get to talk with you. There's so much more that can be discussed, but I want to give you the last word. As I think about our viewers, listeners who are part of this, I would want every single person to imagine this notion that the beauty that God longs to create with us is also the beauty that God is longing for us to become. Most of us don't wake up in the morning and imagine or wonder, gosh, I wonder how much more beautiful I'll be by the end of the day. And I want to invite us to consider that that is exactly what the Holy Trinity is wondering. That the Holy Trinity is imagining us into the next 10 minutes, imagining us into the next six hours imagining us becoming even more illuminating than we are. It is our shame and our trauma that prevents us from imagining this. And my hope is that our listeners would find some version of a community that is enabled to see their beauty as it is emerging and not least in those places about ourselves where our trauma and our shame has truncated our creativity has buried it and has us convinced that 
we aren't really artists. We're just trying to get through our freaking day. But as Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You are utterly illuminating. And my hope is that even in the midst of our trauma, not just individually, but that we're experiencing in our world, that we would envision our lives as being those that are on the move to create outposts of beauty and goodness in the world, even as we are becoming the same. Kurt, thanks so much. Always a joy to get to talk with you. Indeed. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on living wisely and well. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.